Have you heard of the largest documented dam failure known to human history? In 1975, Typhoon Nina struck China, leading to ensuing floods on the Bantiao Dam. This resulted in one of the deadliest known typhoon disasters in human history. The dam started to collapse as the typhoon exceeded the dam's structural capacity. The high pressures of the floods resulted in the collapse of downstream dams and reservoirs, costing the lives of 150,000 individuals. The dam in this setting is analogous to esophageal varices, which are torturous veins that develop in cirrhosis when there are elevated portal venous pressures. When the abdominal portal venous system is under high pressures, similar to the Banqiao Dam, it ruptures, causing a life-threatening medical emergency called an acute variceal hemorrhage. Today, our patient has an acute gastroesophageal variceal hemorrhage, and you are the doctor. to the Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled The Black Flood and is all about gastroesophageal varices. All right, time for a minute physiology. Cirrhosis occurs when healthy liver cells, otherwise known as hepatocytes, are replaced by fibrous tissue and regenerative nodules in response to chronic liver injury, eventually resulting in the loss of the liver's natural synthetic function. Can you think of why cirrhotic patients would have an increased portal venous pressure that might result in life-threatening gastroesophageal variceal hemorrhages? To answer this question, we need to go on a journey through the normal portal venous system anatomy and physiology. Normally, the liver receives about 15-25% to of the heart's cardiac output through the hepatic artery and the portal vein. The portal vein is a key vascular structure in the abdomen as it drains blood from the various abdominal organs into the liver. When the portal vein reaches the liver, it branches into many smaller portal venules, which coalesce with the hepatic arterioles, bile ductules, and lymphatic ducts to form the portal triad. As the contents of the portal vein travel through the liver, Hepatocytes exchange digestive end products, process toxins, and produce metabolites before the blood eventually empties into the hepatic sinusoids, hepatic vein, inferior vena cava, and finally back to the heart and the rest of the body. While the vast majority of blood enters this microcirculation to undergo hepatic metabolism, there is a system that bypasses the liver called collateral flow or portosystemic collateral veins, which will become important. Keep this in mind. As the liver is a highly vascular organ, an essential feature is its permeability and compliance to accommodate large volumes of blood without altering its normal physiologic hepatic venous pressure gradient of 1 to 5 millimeters of mercury. However, in cirrhosis, this permeability is lost. Hyperdynamic circulatory states and increased plasma volume seen in cirrhosis results in portal venous inflow into a fibrotic liver with increased vascular resistance, leading to a phenomena termed portal hypertension. Consequences of portal hypertension becomes clinically relevant when the hepatic venous pressure gradient is greater than 10 millimeters of mercury. Sustained portal hypertension leads to the engorgement of portosystemic anastomoses, which are either the reversal of flow in existing veins or the reopening of collapsed embryonic vessels. This occurs as the portal vein attempts to divert flow from the high-pressure system in the liver, 
with the most clinically relevant collateral vessels being gastric and esophageal varices. These veins do not have strong walls meant to contain high-pressure flow, and therefore they have a higher risk of rupture. Gastroesophageal varices are identified in about 50% of all patients with cirrhosis and 85% of patients with decompensated cirrhosis. Per year, these varices hemorrhage at a rate of 10 to 15%. An acute gastroesophageal variceal hemorrhage is a medical emergency with an estimated six-week mortality of 15 to 25%. The trigger of an acute variceal hemorrhage is unclear, as bleeding events can occur spontaneously. There is some evidence to suggest that bacterial infections can trigger an acute hemorrhagic episode, as it impairs the body's natural hemostasis and increases the portal venous pressures. Typically, patients present with abdominal pain, hematemesis, or coffee ground emesis, melina, and symptoms of anemia. Identifying and managing acute gastroesophageal variceal hemorrhages is crucial, as hemorrhage from a gastroesophageal varix results in rapid exsanguination and is the cause of death in approximately one-third of cirrhotic patients. All right, let's move on to our approach. When a patient with cirrhosis presents with symptoms of an upper GI hemorrhage, what are the two main classifications to consider? If you thought non-variceal and variceal, you'd be right. Etiologies of non-variceal hemorrhages include peptic ulcer disease, esophagitis, arteriovenous malformations, esophageal and gastric tumors, aortoenteric fistulas, and Mallory-Weiss tears. Variceal hemorrhages occur as a result of acute exsanguination from a ruptured gastric or esophageal varix. It is important to keep these two classifications in mind when conducting your history and physical examination, as the management varies depending on etiology. Remember that cirrhotic patients can present and do present with a non-variceal hemorrhage. If your hemodynamically unstable patient has a known history of decompensated cirrhosis, gastroesophageal varices, or risk factors that are concerning for the development of cirrhosis, you should manage your patient as an acute variceal hemorrhage until proven otherwise. Determining the etiology of an acute upper GI hemorrhage can be difficult to differentiate clinically, and diagnosis is typically confirmed at the time of endoscopy. For the purpose of today's podcast, we will mainly focus on acute gastroesophageal variceal hemorrhage. Given the significant mortality associated with an acute gastroesophageal variceal hemorrhage, you'll need to begin your assessment with knowing your patient's hemodynamic stability. Are they exhibiting signs of hemorrhagic shock, such as tachycardia, hypotension, and positive orthostatic vitals? Is there mean arterial pressure above or below 65 millimeters of mercury? Is their airway maintained? What is their level of consciousness? Are they encephalopathic? Ensure that your patient's airway is secured, particularly in encephalopathic patients, as there is an increased risk of aspiration of gastric contents. If there is any concern about the safety of your patient's airway or significant low level of consciousness, consider endotracheal intubation. Your initial resuscitation includes adequate IV access with two large 16-gauge IVs, supplemental oxygen, and resuscitation with isotonic crystalloids, such as normal saline or ringer's lactate, 
to expand your patient's plasma volume and to ensure end-organ perfusion. Initial resuscitation in a suspected acute variceal hemorrhage, particularly in unstable patients, includes packed red blood cell transfusions to target a hemoglobin of at least 70 grams per liter. However, remember that in an acute hemorrhage, measured serum hemoglobin may not be an accurate reflection of your patient's true intravascular blood volume. Platelets should also be transfused if less than 50 in a bleeding patient. In severely unstable patients who do not respond to initial resuscitative measures with IV fluids and blood products, a massive transfusion protocol should be initiated. This consists of four units of packed red blood cells, four units of plasma, and one unit of platelets. Transfusing with platelets and plasma is crucial to achieving hemostasis in a massive transfusion protocol, as packed red blood cells do not contain clotting factors or platelets. Once your patient is stable, you can then proceed with your assessment. On history, you need to identify the acuity, quantity, and characteristic of your patient's hematemesis, which typically is described as bright red blood or coffee ground. Hematemesis occurs when intraluminal gastrointestinal hemorrhage is proximal to the ligament of trites, a structure adjacent to the duodenal jejunal flexure. Typically, coffee ground emesis indicates a mild to moderate bleed, while frank bloody emesis suggests a moderate to severe bleed. Another indication of an upper gastrointestinal hemorrhage is melina, which occurs as red blood cells are broken down via the enzymes in the gastrointestinal tract. It is also important to assess for hematochesia, a clinical feature typically associated with lower gastrointestinal hemorrhages, however, can be seen in a severe brisk upper GI bleed, which is what often occurs with a variceal hemorrhage. Signs of anemia and hypovolemia can also be experienced such as orthostatic hypotension, syncope, chest pain, shortness of breath, and fatigue. Identifying if your patient has a past medical history of cirrhosis, secondary to one of the numerous causes, including alcoholic liver disease, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH, or NAFLD, viral hepatitis, autoimmune, and hereditary liver disease, is essential to elicit. When conducting your history, ask about risk factors for cirrhosis, which include regular or moderate alcohol consumption, metabolic syndrome, right-sided heart failure, chronic hepatitis B or C infection, and hemochromatosis. If your patient is already known to have cirrhosis, increasing risk factors of an acute hemorrhage with known variceal disease include a known large varix, severity of liver dysfunction based on the child pew classification, and red whale marks or thinning of the variceal wall. Identify any medications that could perpetuate a variceal hemorrhage, such as NSAIDs, anticoagulation, and antiplatelets. Coexisting decompensated features of cirrhosis can also occur simultaneously during an acute variceal hemorrhage, such as ascites, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, and hepatic encephalopathy. On physical exam, hemodynamic stability is a key component to continually reassess. Stigmata of liver disease can also be seen, such as hepatic encephalopathy, jaundice, asterixis, Dupuytren's contracture, finger clubbing, spider angiomas, gynecomastia, caput medusa, palpable nodular liver, splenomegaly, and ascites. Conduct an abdominal examination. 
look for tenderness in the epigastric area. Diffuse abdominal pain may also be representative of SBP. However, remember that many patients with SBP may present without abdominal pain. Presence of melina on digital rectal exam has a likelihood ratio of 25 and was noted to be the most useful finding associated with an upper GI hemorrhage according to the JAMA Physical Exam Series in 2012. On to our workup. Evaluation of a patient with an acute variceal hemorrhage includes a CBC, blood type and cross, serum chemistries, liver, and coagulation profiles. Assess your patient's anemia, which could be normocytic in the setting of an acute bleed. If microcytic anemia or iron deficiency anemia is seen, this may indicate coexisting chronic bleeding. In an acute hemorrhage episode, your patient's hemoglobin at the time of initial assessment can be falsely high in the setting of hemoconcentration and volume loss. Subsequent hemoglobin levels may indicate your patient's true level of anemia, particularly after resuscitation. An elevated urea to creatinine ratio is typically seen in the setting of decreased renal perfusion, with higher urea to creatinine ratios indicative of an upper GI hemorrhage. The most important part of your initial resuscitation is early consultation to gastroenterology or general surgery for consideration of upper endoscopy, which can assist with diagnosis and management. On endoscopy, features typically seen in an acute variceal hemorrhage include active bleeding with obvious spurting or oozing from a varix, an adherent clot to the varix, or presence of varices without any identifiable other source of bleeding. The three goals of management of an acute variceal hemorrhage are to control active bleeding, prevent early five-day rebleed, and prevent six-week mortality. Once you stabilize your patient, you must begin your medical management. Ensure that you maintain a hemoglobin level between 70 to 80 grams per liter and prevent overtransfusion. Remember that overtransfusion or targeting a hemoglobin greater than 90 is associated with poorer prognosis as over-resuscitation can actually increase bleeding from your varix. Targeting a hemoglobin of 80 to 90 is acceptable in patients with coexisting coronary artery disease. The treatment of an acute variceal hemorrhage consists of two main pillars, medical management and endoscopic variceal ligation therapy, performed by gastroenterology or in general surgery. Medical management for variceal hemorrhage is summarized as resuscitation, antibiotics, vasoactive medications, and proton pump inhibitors. Initiating resuscitation and medical management is crucial and should be initiated immediately after the initial assessment and continued until definitive endoscopic variceal ligation is performed. In the setting of an acute variceal hemorrhage, infections have been shown to increase portal pressures, impair hemostasis, and worsen hypovolemia, leading to persistent bleeding, acute renal failure, and synthetic liver dysfunction. RCTs have shown a significant benefit from providing early antibiotic prophylaxis with IV ceftriaxone 1 gram Q24 hours for 2 to 5 days with a maximum treatment duration of 7 days. This has been shown to have an associated decreased risk of infection, recurrent hemorrhage, and death. Given the gram-negative coverage of fluoroquinolones, 
these antimicrobial agents can also be used as an alternative to ceftriaxone. Vasoactive agents such as somatostatin, octreotide, and terlipressin are recommended as bolus followed by an IV infusion for 3-5 to five days, as they lower the splanchnic blood flow and are associated with a lower 7-day mortality and decreased transfusion requirements. Terlipressin is not currently available in Canada, and octreotide is a long-acting somatostatin analog, most commonly used. Octreotide is dosed at 50 micrograms IV bolus, followed by an infusion of 50 micrograms per hour for about 2-5 to five days. On initial presentation, it may be difficult to differentiate if your cirrhotic patient is presenting with a variceal or non-variceal hemorrhage, as the clinical presentation may be similar. As a result, it is recommended to initiate treatment with a proton pump inhibitor, such as pantoprazole. Pantoprazole is an agent typically used in the treatment algorithm for acute non-variceal hemorrhages and should be started immediately in your cirrhotic patient presenting with an upper GI bleed as these agents are associated with decreased rates of re-bleeding episodes in acute bleeding ulcers. Remember that even patients with cirrhosis and known varices can also develop peptic ulcer disease. Ensure that your patient is started on a pantoprazole 80 mg IV bolus, followed by an infusion of 8 mg per hour, or pantoprazole 40 mg IV BID for 24 to 72 hours. Consulting gastroenterology or general surgery is essential to perform an esophago-gastroduodenoscopy, or EGD, within 12 hours of admission to perform endoscopic variceal ligation. If EGD is not available at your institution, it is essential to initiate your initial resuscitation and medical management immediately and transfer your patient to the nearest specialty center to perform these life-saving measures. A Blakemore tube or balloon tamponade can be inserted into the esophagus or stomach to achieve short-term hemostasis to help ensure your patient is transferred safely to an institution where upper endoscopy can be performed. After achieving endoscopic variceal control, continue medical management for approximately 2-5 to five days and monitor for signs of re-bleeding. If re-bleeding occurs, additional endoscopic therapy may be indicated. We're going to briefly discuss primary and secondary prophylaxis of variceal hemorrhage. Current guidelines suggest that at the time of cirrhosis diagnosis, all patients should undergo screening with EGD every two to three years to screen for varices and assess if patients require prophylactic treatment. For primary prevention, the use of non-selective beta-adrenergic blockers, such as natalol or carvedilol, or EGD endoscopic band ligation have been effective at preventing first presentations of acute variceal hemorrhage. For secondary prophylaxis, beta-adrenergic blockers and endoscopic band ligation are recommended. Transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunts, or TIPS, may be used for refractory bleeding in specific cases. All right, time for a medicine minute. In 2019, the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases conducted a multi-center international observational study on the use of preemptive TIPS in high-risk patients with acute variceal hemorrhage. This observational study followed patients who were managed as per current guidelines 
with medical management and endoscopic therapy versus a preemptive TIPS procedure. Patients with child PUC cirrhosis presenting with an active variceal hemorrhage had a lower one-year mortality of 22% versus 47% when managed with preemptive TIPS in comparison to those treated medically and endoscopically. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled The Black Flood, all about gastroesophageal varices. This episode was written by Dr. Maria McHale, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Nuar Teriyaki, gastroenterologist and general hepatologist, as well as Dr. Karen Gukers, general internal medicine. This episode was recorded by Allison Lai. Sound production by Nathan Dupnik. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Zara Morelli, and Leah Karinopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. As always, we have associated resources on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.